Well, if you were here with us last week, you know that we started a little mini-series on community. And you've probably noticed, if you've been around River Rock, you've noticed that we do this about once a semester. And, And the reason we do that, the reason we preach so much on community, is because we believe, we firmly believe, that life and life change happens in circles and not in rows. Sunday morning, you're sitting in rows. Right? But we believe life change happens in circles. It comes when you sit around in someone's living room and you tell success stories from the week and you tell about the hard times that you're going through and you pray for one another. It, it happens around a dinner table just as you share a meal and you get to know someone. That's where life happens. And so we really encourage as often as, as we can that you be a part of a community outside of just Sunday morning because you can know people on Sunday morning but you can't really know them. You know what I mean? You can know their name, but you don't really get to know someone if you only see them Sunday morning. So we talk about doing life together. And so Stephen started us off last week, and he looked at the story of Jonathan and David and how it says in Samuel that Jonathan and David, their souls were knit together. Their souls were knit together. Have you ever had a friend like that? That you guys were just knit together, you couldn't be pulled apart? Uh, and that's what we see in Jonathan and David. And, and really, I believe when we look in the New Testament, we see that the church, within the church, we're supposed to have those kinds of relationships, those kind of knit together relationships where you know that other person has got your back, that they have your best interest in mind. Philippians 2.4 says, everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That's a hard thing to do, Right? We tend to be pretty self-centered, right? MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, all these things are about us, but we're instructed to look out for others. We're, we're expected to have that kind of uh, soul-knitting relationship that we see with Jonathan and David. And I think you see this clearly when you look at the one another statements found throughout the New Testament. Now, these statements are not just suggestions. These are actually commands, and Stephen hit on these a little bit last week. The first one that we see probably most often is love one another. We're just called to love one another. We're called to serve one another. We're called to pray for one another, and we're called to be devoted to one another. All these things. Man, who doesn't want a relationship where you're being loved, served, prayed for, and someone's devoted to you, and you have the opportunity to do the exact same for them? That's my idea of a solid friendship. But there's some others that we're not going to hit on this morning, but there is one more I want us to look at, and that is we're called to encourage one another. We're called to encourage one another, and often when we think of encouragement, what do we think about? We think about the attaboys, the you know, things that people tell us of, hey, I like your shirt today, or the things that are encouraging that make us feel good right? Does anybody not like to feel good? I like to feel good. I like it when people say nice things to me. It makes me feel good, right? We like all that. But there's another side to encouragement that I think we often overlook. And there's a couple more of these one another commands that I think falls under that category of encouragement. And the first one is this, admonish one another. Who knows what admonish means? Who's got an idea? It's not a word we use a lot. Warn? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to warn you. I see you going down this path, and I'm going to warn you not to go down it. Sometimes it's even a little bit harder. Sometimes it's the form of a rebuke of, hey, you're doing this, and you need to cut it out, right? And, and we need that kind of encouragement at times. The other one is this, that we would spur one another on, Hebrews 10, 24, that you would spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That word spur literally means to irritate. 
How many of you wear contacts in here, right? You ever get something in your contact, an eyelash or a piece of dirt or dust or something gets in there? It's irritating. If you just get sand in your eyes, it's irritating. It might make your eyes water, and you've got to do something immediately to stop it, right? You, you've got to stop the irritation. You've got to get it out of there. And Scripture says, hey, you guys irritate each other for a good reason, until you're doing the loving things, until you're doing the good deeds that Jesus Christ has called you to do. Like, that's okay if someone says, hey, I'm not going to let you sleep in tomorrow. I'm, I'm coming by your house, 945. I'm picking you up. We're going to church. I'm picking you up at, at 630, and we're going to community group together. You don't have an excuse. We're coming together, right? We irritate one another to love and good deeds. But it's this kind of encouragement that we often struggle with because it's not the warm fuzzies that we're used to, right? Yet we're called to encourage one another. It's necessary at times that we go through this admonishment, that we go through this kind of spurring one another on. And often this comes from, as Stephen talked about last week, our 2 a.m. friends, right? These are the friends that you can call them at 2 a.m. and say, man, I can't sleep because I'm worried about. And before you can hang up the phone, they're knocking on your door. Sometimes we call these refrigerator friends. And I think the ultimate refrigerator friend that's out there is Cosmo Kramer, right? If you've ever seen Seinfeld, you know that Kramer is a refrigerator friend. He comes in the door and he's like this, and then he goes straight to the refrigerator, opens it up, takes what he wants, and sometimes he takes what he wants and then he just leaves. He doesn't even stay at Jerry's. He just takes it and goes. That's a refrigerator friend. They've got ultimate rights into your life. And my guess is that these same friends, your 2 a.m. friends, your refrigerator friends, these are also what we call your I-just-don't-get-it friends. I-just-don't-get-it friends. These are the friends that when you come home and you complain about how hard work is and how unfair your boss is, they're the ones that look you straight in the face and say, man, I, I just don't get it. Yeah, life is hard. I don't understand what you're so upset about. I don't get it, right? And they encourage you like, hey, You've got to get over this. You've got to move past it. Don't let it keep you uh, frozen. But you've got to move past it. Let's work on this together to get past it. Right? So we all need those I just don't get it friends. And there's a big reason why we all need those. And that's because of blind spots. Blind spots. You all know what a blind spot is, right? When you're driving, it's, it's that spot where you can't see it in your mirror. And even if you turn and look over your shoulder, you still can't see that one little spot yet there could be something very, very dangerous lingering right there. I remember when I started driving my little black Ford Ranger pickup, uh, first couple times I drove it, I was getting honked at all the time. It's like I got my blinker on, check my mirror, look over my shoulder, but there is an, an enormous blind spot in that little pickup truck that I couldn't see, and so I was running people off the road for the first couple months. Um, didn't bother me any, but they weren't happy about it. Uh, So I had these blind spots, and I didn't have any way to see them. Sometimes our blind spots are smaller, like on a car. Other times, people have major blind spots, like an 18-wheeler, and they have more blind spots than they know what to do with. And in those cases, what we need is we need someone who's going to hold the mirror up for us and say, hey, I want to show you. Can you see it now? Because sometimes in life, these are are simple blind spots. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you walk around all day, you had a salad for lunch, and finally, at 6 o'clock at night, your husband or your spouse says, um, 
you have salad in your teeth. You're like, nobody told me all day long I had salad in my teeth. Or you walk around all day long, you get home, and your wife says, your zipper's down. You're like, nobody told me all day long my zipper has been down. And honestly, that is my biggest fear, that one Sunday, I'm going to get up here, preach the sermon of my life, and no one will hear it because my zipper's down, and everybody's just looking at me. So if I ever get up here, my zipper's down, just yell it, just say, your zipper's down. And we'll know it's going to be a good sermon after that. But... Uh, you know, we have these experiences. My wife had a mentor who talked about being in a restaurant once and a young lady comes out of the restroom and her skirt is tucked into the back of her underwear and nobody says anything. So she gets up and she walks over and she finally approaches this poor young girl and she says, your skirt's tucked in your underwear. You know, you've got to have someone that's got your back like that. You've got to have that friend that's going to tell you, man, your zipper's down. You've got food in your teeth. You've got a little something in your nose there. You need to get that out. We need people that are going to hold the mirror up to us. And not just in those funny instances, because really, sometimes we have personality issues. We have issues with our personality that we can't see until we have someone hold the mirror up. It's like this cartoon here. You've got two pioneers. One's wearing a coonskin cap. One's got the skunk on his head, and it says, ever wonder why you're so unpopular? Right? You ever wonder why you're so unpopular? It's sitting right on top of your head. You can't see it, but everybody else can. And I'm going to love you enough to, to tell you what's going on. And we need this not just sometimes in our personalities, but also with our spiritual walk. That we would have someone, when we have sin in our lives, that we would have someone who loves us enough to come over to us and pull us aside and in a loving and gentle way hold the mirror up and say, do you see it now? Can you see it now? Because this is what God sees. And I think we struggle with that because if we're honest, we don't want to recognize our own sin, right? We, we downplay our own sin and we think, well, it's, it's just not that big a deal. Nobody else knows about this. Or we think, well, my sin is not, not that bad. It's not as often as someone else. And we start to downplay our sin thinking that it's not a big deal, but really to God, it is a big deal. And so in those moments, we need that friend who are going to come to us and hold up the mirror and say, look, look, you got to fix this, but I'm here for you. Let's fix it together. We all need those friends. And in David's life, he had just that in a man named Nathan. He had that in a man named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet in the king's court. And we read about him throughout 2 Kings, a um, little bit into Chronicles and 1 Kings and in 2 Samuel. You can read a couple different stories about him, and we're going to talk a little bit about him this morning. But what you need to know is that Nathan is uh, a prophet of God, but he's also a friend of David. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But he's the one who, after David has committed his sin with Bathsheba, he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba finds out that she's pregnant. And she sends word to David. So David calls Uriah, his, uh, Bathsheba's husband, from the front lines of fighting. He says, come home and come hang out with me. And then he tries to get him to go home to his wife. But Uriah is an upright man. So he won't go in and sleep with his wife while all of his buddies are out on the front line fighting and dying. And so David hears about this, that Uriah didn't go home. And so he says, come back, Uriah, come back, have a party at my place. I'm going to get him drunk. And if I can get him drunk enough, then we can get him home, and he'll think it's his baby. So he gets Uriah drunk, and Uriah's drunk, but even in his drunkenness, Uriah has enough integrity to not go home and be with his wife while his friends are out fighting and dying. So David 
hatches this plan to get rid of Uriah because he's got to find a way to bring Bathsheba into his house, make her his wife, and make everyone think that this baby is legitimate so that his sin is covered up. So he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a note, sealed note that says, hey, put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest and then draw back. Leave him there to die. Essentially, David has Uriah murdered. He murders Uriah. And at the time, nobody knows about it. Nobody knows what's going on. And David, in his mind, is thinking that he's gotten away with it and that his sin is not a big deal. And that's where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says this, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And Nathan replied, David, you are the man. David has this major sin in his life, adultery and murder, that he is completely oblivious to and blind to. He thinks he's gotten away with it and that it's not a big deal. And Nathan comes to him and holds up the mirror and says, do you see it now? Do you see it now? And what we see is that as he tells this story to David, that David realizes that there's an injustice that's been done here and it needs to be corrected. And then he hears the words, you are the man. You see, Nathan was using that story saying, look, this, this shepherd who had this small little sheep, that was Uriah. And his sheep that he cared for and loved like a daughter, that was Bathsheba. And you took her. You essentially killed her. You killed him. And David begins to understand, and he, he's furious at what's taken place. So what we take away from this, when we think about having faithful friendships, the kind of friendships where we're knit together, where people are going to come to us and not just build us up all the time and say the things that make us feel good, but they're going to hold the mirror up to, them, to us, help us see our blind spots to move past them so that we're stronger in the end. The first thing that, that has to happen in these types of relationships is that we have to be willing to have the difficult conversation. And that's what Nathan does. He's willing to have the difficult conversation. Now, I know most of us in here, we avoid confrontation like the plague. We don't go and seek after it. We do everything we can to not have confrontation. And you can imagine Nathan is kind of in the same spot. David has already had one man killed. Do you think it would be anything big for him to have someone who says something he really doesn't like killed? Nathan knows this. David's the king. He can pretty much do whatever he wants and get away with it. But Nathan is willing to have the difficult conversation. He's willing to have the difficult conversation. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the example of how we're to handle sin within the church. 
when somebody sins against us, somebody does something that makes us really angry, Jesus gives us the model for how we're to handle that. And let me tell you, it does not start with the offended person going to the pastor and the elders. It doesn't start with the offended person going to someone else that they're friends with and saying, can you believe that Sally said this? Somebody should do something about it. No, the model that Jesus gives us starts with a one-on-one conversation that you would go to the person who's offended you, who sinned against you and say, I'm really uh, not happy that we have to have this conversation. It's really hard for me, but we, we need to talk about this. And we have the hard conversation. That honors God. That's the kind of friendship that God desires for us to have. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I know that I'm supposed to have those kinds of, quest- kinds of conversations. But the difficult part is in knowing how to have that conversation. Right? We all know that if we've got a problem with someone, we should go to them directly. But the hard part is, how do I do that? How do I do that in a way that doesn't just make them yell at me and scream at me and tell me what a horrible person I am. And I think we have a moment here with Nathan and David. And the first thing that, that I see here is that Nathan is sent to David. Nathan is sent to David. Well, who is Nathan? Nathan was a court prophet. He was someone that knew David. He would probably see him on a very regular basis. And he was the one who would deliver messages from God to David and the people of Israel. But as we look at other passages outside of this one, we see that there was something more between David and Nathan. Back in earlier in 2 Samuel, we read about David's sons who were born to him while he lived in Jerusalem. Guess what one of them was named? Nathan, most likely after Nathan the prophet. We know that when David has the dream that he's going to build this temple for God, this is the, the first permanent temple, the great temple of David that he wants to build. To honor God, the first person who he tells is Nathan. It's Nathan. When David and Bathsheba have their second son, guess who gets to name him? Nathan. And when David's on his deathbed, and one of his sons, Adonijah, is trying to usurp the throne, after David had promised to Solomon, he told Solomon, hey, you are going to take over when I die. And everybody knew it. But David's other son, Adonijah, comes in and he tries to usurp the throne. And it's Nathan who comes to him and says, David, Adonijah's trying to take the throne. If you want to be true to your word, here's what you need to do. Here are the steps you need to take. And David on his deathbed listens to Nathan and does exactly what Nathan says and restores the kingdom to Solomon. This is a good friend. You name your kid after somebody, you're probably pretty close. Someone who's got your back in every instance. You let someone else name your kid, especially today with some of the names that are out there. You let someone else name your kid. Man, you're taking a big risk. These guys were were more than just king and prophet. They were good friends. They were good friends. And so there's something about this that, that Nathan is David's friend. And so God sends a friend to Nathan. And here's something I I want you to understand about this is when we talk about having these conversations, the difficult conversations, I'm not telling you to go up to someone you've just met on a Sunday morning and tell them what an awful sinner they are. That's not what we have in mind here. No, it takes time and it takes energy and it takes effort to build this kind of relationship to where you earn the right and you have given the right for someone else to speak into your life. Proverbs 27.6 says this, it says, The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, 
but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. What does that mean? The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. We've all had this experience. Maybe it was back in high school. Some of you maybe even face this still today, where you have that one person that you know, you know they despise your guts, right? But you walk into a party, and they're there, and they walk up, and they're hi, how are you? So glad you're here tonight. How you been? It's been a long time. And they're overly friendly to you to mask around everybody else the fact that they hate your guts, Right? We've all been there. We all know it's true. Sometimes we've probably been that person, but we know what that's like. Those are excessive kisses from the enemy. A faithful wound from a friend is the one who's going to come to you and say, man, I've seen you talking to that woman in the office. I know she's young and she's attractive, but you've got to be careful. You need to limit your interaction with her. You're headed down a dangerous path. Or someone who comes to you and says, you said this, uh, to your, your wife, and I overheard the way you said that, and man, that was just not right. You need to apologize to your wife. And those, those types of, of conversations, they sting and they wound us. But man, isn't that better than someone just letting us live in our own sin and misery? Isn't that better than following that sin all the way down to its, its end? The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. We can trust them because we know that they love us. We know that they are looking out for our own interest as much as they're looking out for their own. The second thing we see in this, and you're going to think this is the exact same as the first one, but uh, the second part of having this conversation is not only to make sure that we are friends with the person, that we have that kind of relationship where we have the freedom and they have the freedom, but the second thing is this, that Nathan is sent to David. Verse 1 says, the Lord sent Nathan, right? Nathan doesn't just go because he decides someone needs to talk to David about his sin. No, he is sent by God. And I would imagine after much prayer, after much prayer, because remember, David is king. He's already had one guy killed. It would be absolutely nothing for him to have another guy killed. And so Nathan is praying, God, is this really what you want me to do? Lord, what would you have me say? How am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed to do, God? And I I honestly think a part of that prayer for Nathan was probably, God, is there any of this sin in my own life that I need to confess before I go talk to David? Because here's the reality. We are all sinners, right? So when you go and talk to someone else about their sin, a lot of times what they're going to do is say, oh yeah, but you do this. And we've got to be ready to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a sinner. But you've got this going on in your life, and I just want to warn you. And if you see something like that in my life, please tell me. Right? We've got to be prepared for that. So Nathan is sent to David. He doesn't go on his own free will. He goes because God has sent him, because the Holy Spirit has laid it on his heart to go and speak to David. But I want to be clear about something. Just because the Holy Spirit is asking you, telling you to go speak to someone, doesn't mean you get to play the role of the Holy Spirit in their life. We're going to see that in just a second, right? You don't get to go and and try to convict people of the sin. That's not your job. That's not your job. 1 Peter 4.11 says this, anyone who speaks should speak as though speaking the very words of God, right? Uh, So anyone who speaks should be as one who speaks God's words, What's that saying? It's saying you don't get to decide what the message is, and when you go and speak to someone, you better back it up with Scripture. 
you better back it up with Scripture, which is part of the third thing that I think it takes to have the difficult conversation. Last thing is that if you look at this, you know that Nathan was prepared. Nathan was prepared. He doesn't just go off and realize that David is in sin and go off and start yelling at David. No, he comes to David and he's prepared. It doesn't really show up in the English text, but in the original language, the story that he tells David is formatted much like the Psalms. It's a poem. I don't know if you've ever tried to write poetry, but it doesn't just come to your brain. It takes time to formulate that kind of story, to formulate that kind of literature. So Nathan takes the time to do that. And think about this. What was the story about? A man and his sheep. A shepherd. What was David before he was king? A little louder. He's a shepherd. Right? He was a shepherd. Who wrote most of the Psalms? David. So you've got Nathan, this friend of David, who comes to him and he's written a psalm about being a shepherd. Talk about speaking directly into the heart of David. And I love what he does. He's so prepared. He doesn't come to David both barrels blasting saying, man, you, you stink. You're the worst person. I'm so ashamed of you. You ought to be disappointed in yourself. I can't believe you'd do this. No, he doesn't blast him like that. He tells him the story using the words that God has given him. He's prepared and he lays out the story and he lets David be the one to proclaim judgment on his own sin. He lets the Holy Spirit work in David to, for David to come to his response. Let's look at that response real quick in verse 13. David says this, first part of verse 13. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It didn't take Nathan waving his finger at David. It took a simple story, words given to him by God, and allowing for the Holy Spirit to work in David's life. And David realizes his sin. David realizes that what he's done is wrong. And I love David's response because he responds with humility. And when we're the ones who someone is approaching, having that difficult conversation, we've got to respond with humility. We've got to recognize that they're coming to us in the spirit of Philippians 2.4. Everyone should look not only in your own interests, but also for the interest of others. That they loved us enough to put themselves out there to have that difficult conversation, realizing for them it could cost them their friendship. We've got to have that kind of humility. And what I love about David, he doesn't apologize to Nathan. He doesn't ask Nathan to forgive him. He recognizes immediately, this is between me and God, and I've sinned against God. And he humbles himself. He humbles himself before God. And we see this in Psalm 51, which is, uh, says this in the title, for the choir director, this is actually in uh, part of the original language, for the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So David writes this psalm after Nathan comes to him. And this is what he says, be gracious to me, God, According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Verse 10, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. In these last two verses, I love these, verse 16 and 17. You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. 
The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Here is a man who has humbled himself before the Lord, seeking God's forgiveness. It takes humility to respond this way. And what I love about David is that he's wise enough to respond in humility immediately. I don't know about you, but for me, the times in my life when I've been confronted like this, it's usually not an immediate response. It takes a little bit of effort because it's easy to get offended. And it's, it's easy for us to be defensive and immediately want to defend our actions to someone else. And so I found a, a couple things that helped me. Number one is to, to take time and pray about it. And here's, here's the two things that, that I pray. I ask these questions. Whenever someone comes up to me, and it happens a lot because I mess up a lot, uh, but whenever someone comes to me and points something out, I ask these two questions. Is there any truth to this? Is there any truth to this? And number two, does this line up with Scripture? Right? Is there any truth to this? Did I really say this? Did I really mess this up? Number two, does what they say line up with Scripture? Asking those questions can put you in a spot to where you're humbled and and you're ready to receive the correction that your friend is offering. And when I was a youth pastor, was on a Wednesday night getting kind of rowdy. One kid in particular wouldn't calm down, and I was trying to teach the lesson. And so I called him out in front of a hundred of his closest friends and embarrassed him. But he got quiet. And after I had taught the lesson, one of the other students came to me and said, hey, can, can I talk to you up in your office for a second? And I said, sure, you know, why not? So we go up into my office and we're talking. He says, I don't think you realized how much you embarrassed. And he named the kid. He said, you should probably apologize to him. I would love to tell you that my immediate response was, hey, you're absolutely right. I'll go do that right now. But my response was, I'm an adult. You're the student. I've got a theology degree. You're still in high school. Get out of my office. Not very humble. Not very God-honoring. But as I stopped and I thought about it and I prayed about it, that week I, I had to call that student and thank him for coming to me saying, you called me on this, and you were absolutely right. I wish I'd responded better. And I'm going to go and talk to that person. So I had to call the kid who I'd embarrassed. And I called him, and I said, man, I'm, I'm really sorry that I embarrassed you. It was a mistake. Please forgive me. And then I had to stand up in front of 100 youth, teenagers. You know how much teenagers love to let you forget that, that you made a mistake. And I stood up there in front of them, and I said, guys, last week I made a mistake. I've apologized to the student, and I hope you guys will all forgive me. And it was amazing what happened in that little bit of humility because most of these students had never seen an adult acknowledge a mistake. They'd never seen an adult say, I messed up. Uh, and it was, it was amazing. So I want to encourage you guys, when you're the one who's receiving that correction, respond in humility. The last thing I would say is this. Give an honest reply. Reply honestly, because that's what we see with Nathan. Nathan says this in the last few verses. Then Nathan replied to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. How beautiful is that? Probably the two worst sins that we can think of in modern days, murder and adultery. Like if you're going to do two things, I'd rather steal, I'd rather 
you know, cheat and lie and all those things than be caught in these two. But the two worst things that we can probably think of, David's done both of them, yet Nathan says, your sins are forgiven. God has forgiven you. And he says, however, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. So Nathan, I think this is key. Nathan reminds David of God's forgiveness. And when we're the ones who are having this conversation, and we're the ones who are having to tell someone, man, you got to work on this, we immediately need to remind them, Jesus Christ died for all of your sins, and you are already forgiven. Don't think that God loves you any less just because you've fallen into this or you've made this mistake. But at the same time, I think it's important that we're honest with them and say, look, you, you are stealing from your office. You're stealing money from your place of business. Uh, God has forgiven you, but you, you, may need, you may lose your job. You cheated on your wife. God has forgiven you. God loves you. Um, but that's going to impact your marriage. That's going to have an impact on your marriage. And we've got to have those honest conversations with people, letting them know how much God loves them, but being honest with them about what, what lies ahead. And the last thing that we see there, very last verse, is that then Nathan went home. He didn't sit around and gloat. He didn't sit around and try to tell David how to fix his problems. He says what God has called him to say, leaves it in David's hands, and he goes home. He goes home. I think that's, that's an important thing for us to recognize, that we don't have to sit around and try to tell people what they need to do about it. We let them figure it out with God, and we go home. We go home. Psalm 32 is a companion passage to, to uh, Psalm 51. And I love these first five verses. These were written after David has been confronted by Nathan. And he talks a little bit about his time in between the moment he committed these sins and he's confronted by Nathan. And this is what he says, talking about his sins being forgiven. He says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. He's talking about being forgiven. Now, this is the part where he starts to talk about what was taking place before Nathan comes to him. He says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took the guilt of my sin away. Isn't that amazing? David thinks he's gotten away with it, yet he's being torn apart on the inside. And it's only when Nathan comes and confronts him that he's able to find the joy of the forgiveness that God has when he's finally able to acknowledge it. And it took a friend to help him to do that. It took a faithful friend who was willing to wound him Let me ask you this. Do you have any Nathans in your life? Do you have any Nathans in your life? Someone that you know has got your back. Someone that you know is not only looking out for for their own interest, but also for your interest. Who are those Nathans in your life? And I'd also ask you this. Who have you invested in enough as a friend 
that you can be a Nathan in their life. We all need them. We all need them because we all have blind spots. And if we're going to accomplish our vision as a church of reaching every man, woman, and child, allowing them to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ, I believe it's these kinds of relationships that demonstrate the gospel. They let people see what it's like to acknowledge their sin, but also to acknowledge that they are forgiven. So it's so important that we have that friend who can hold the mirror up to us. If you don't have a Nathan, if right now you can't think of who is the Nathan in your life, man, I would encourage you to spend this week praying about that and making the investment in a community group, in a small group of people that can come alongside you and hold the mirror up to you and that you can be there for them to hold the mirror up for them when they need it. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we acknowledge fully that every single one of us here is a sinner. None of us are perfect. But God, we are grateful for the friends that you've placed in our life who are faithful and loving enough to to wound us, to have difficult conversations. Lord, we pray that when we're the ones being approached about our sin, that you would give us humility that we'd be humble enough to acknowledge it. And when we're the ones who are having the difficult conversation, approaching someone else about their sin, Lord, would you help us to reply honestly, reminding them of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ alone, that they would not be disheartened, but they would be encouraged. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.